Welcome to the Novel Analyst Podcast. I'm Jed Hearn, and each episode I analyze a story to help you become a better writer. This is episode 5, Interview with Gabrielle Bergmoser. So, in a bit of a departure from my normal episodes where I analyze a story, today I've got something really cool lined up. It is an interview with Gabrielle Bergmoser, who is a Melbourne-based author and playwright. In 2015, he won the prestigious Sir Peter Ustinov Television Scriptwriting Award for his pilot screenplay based on windmills, and was flown to the International Emmys in New York to accept. The same pilot was later nominated for the Monte Miller Award. In 2016, his first young adult novel, Boone Shepherd, was published by Belfrog Books. It was later shortlisted for the Reading's Young Adult Prize the day after the sequel, Boone Shepherd's American Adventure, was released. The third book, Boone Shepherd, The Silhouette and the Sacrifice, will be released on November 1st, 2018, and a television adaptation is currently in development with Pirate Size Productions. From 2015 to 2018, Gabriel was a regular on the popular podcast Movie Maintenance and wrote audio dramas for the spin-off show Movie Maintenance Presents, including an adaptation of Springsteen that hit number three on the iTunes Performing Arts charts. He is also a writer and critic for denofgeek.com and co-creator of the web series Bogan Book Club. In the following interview, Gabe and I talk about Windmills, Boone Shepherd, and we conclude with an analysis of Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, which is one of Gabe's favourite books. We also talk about a ton of other things that Gabe has written, and a lot about the craft of writing itself. So, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Gabe, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, just to start things off, uh, on your blog, which has a lot of amazing articles that all writers should definitely check out, you often talk about windmills, and it seems to me that it's probably been your biggest obsession. Talk me through how you've evolved together. Oh, God. Um, windmills, windmills is like a weird combination of your... It's like your favourite child crossed with the horrible devil hanging on your back that never quite goes <laughs> away. Um, so, so, yeah, Windmills was a story that I first came up with in, in 2009 when I was in year 12. And it was just kind of one of those, like... One of those, like, strange lightning rod moments where I think we were watching a play in... Um, we, yeah, because we used to go and see a lot of plays uh, through the theatre studies class I was doing at the time... And I was watching this play, and the play was kind of all about, like, abortion and kind of, like, you know, going into, I guess, you know, the, the morals or whatever of, of that. And, um, and there was just this moment where this, this idea just struck me. And the, the premise was, okay, so you imagine you've got two teenagers. Um, they're out at a wild, crazy party. They're drinking. They're, they're, they're trying drugs. They're doing all kinds of stuff. And in the middle of all of this, they sleep together. And the next day, the guy remembers it, and the girl doesn't. And what do you do in that situation? And then you kind of add in a few other factors. So the guy has a publishing deal for his first novel. Um, he's kind of considered a golden child. He's sort of very much like the Dorian Gray archetype, like kind of seemingly perfect on the outside, but sort of rotten on the inside. And kind of it, it's the theme of it is sort of very much about the idea that impossible choices become extremely possible when the gun is to our head. Like we all think that we would act a certain way in a morally complex situation, but the moment we're actually put in that situation, our actions can actually differ quite strongly from our perception of what, who we think we are. And that theme kind of just like, it, it just, it's the sort of thing that's always really fascinated me. And then, yeah, so I, so I wrote Windmills at the time when I was in year 12. And, you know, I, I think, I think it's fair to say that I definitely, you know, I mean, I was 17. I, was, I wasn't really probably capable of 
fully exploring the ideas in the way I wanted to. And, you know, that, that first draft was like very much like a discovery draft. You know, I, I found myself kind of going off into weird narrative tangents. Like there were certain supporting characters who I became really fascinated by. And I kind of wanted to see where they ended up and what their story was. And so I kind of, you know, followed their stories down rabbit holes that didn't really have anything to do with the overall plot. And I kind of ended up with this like weird disjointed book that, you know, jumped between times, that jumped between characters, that didn't really have like, you know, much of a central narrative thrust or central narrative cohesion, but I was completely obsessed with it. And then I guess kind of after that, I was, um, I was doing a lot of youth theatre stuff when I was just out of school and I was working with a company who were interested in producing Windmills as a stage production. And then that happened and then I kind of revisited the book and then I ended up self-publishing a, a really badly printed version of it in 2012, um, which was sort of a rewritten version of the original with kind of a lot of the material that I discovered doing the stage play. And then, um, and then yeah, I kind of left it for a couple of years. And then when I was at the Victorian College of the Arts studying my Masters of Screenwriting, I, I kind of was working on this other project that... I because the, the course went for a year and a half, and over that first year, I was working on this completely different feature film project. And I got to the end of that first year, and I mean, VCA is an incredible test of a script because you know you you get um you, you work with a tutor, and every week they will kind of read your new draft, and they'll be kind of like, all right, well that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, and it's it's an incredible test of how passionate you are about a story if you can come out the other side of it and still give a crap about your story, you know. Um, so, so by the end of that first year, I'd sort of reached breaking point with the feature I was working on. I kind of went away for the break thinking, you know, what am I going to do now? Because I just don't think I can keep working on this same story. I think I've, I think I've stretched at the point where my passion for it has completely gone. And then I just sort of had the brainwave of revisiting windmills. So over my last semester at VCA, I workshopped windmills as a pilot and, um, you know, I guess I sort of used the material I had so far in the different novel iterations and the different drafts and the stage iterations as sort of a jumping off point to develop this pilot episode. And I worked really closely with um, Peter Matesi, who was my tutor at VCA, who's, um, who's a pretty well-renowned television writer and sort of one of the head people in the Australian Writers Guild. And, um, and yeah, we worked like very closely together on it. Um, I think I frustrated the hell out of Peter while working on this. But eventually I hit the point where the screenplay, you know, it, it did really well. Like, I, I, I was really happy with it. And I think I, like... I ended up getting like first class honors for it. And I was like kind of, you know, really happy about, um, about sort of how it had come together. And I was really proud of how it ended up. And then it went on to win the Sir Peter Usinov award, which was completely insane and completely unexpected. But, but it was like the most, probably one of the most vindicating moments of my life because I had a lot of friends from school who, you know, I'd stayed friends with over the years who knew windmills from the very first version of it. And they knew this story I've been working on forever and I remember even when I mentioned to one friend of mine that I'd revisited Windmills to work on it for VCA, he was like, dude, just let it go, okay? It's been years, like, let it go. And a lot of people kind of said that to me, and there was, like, a lot of rolled eyes from different people when I mentioned that I was working on another version of Windmills. But um, sort of when it won the use of, like, I, it was a weird thing because, you know, that was kind of the first, I guess, like, first kind of career-defining moment for me of being like, here is tangible evidence that you are good enough at what you do to make a career of this. Because up until then, I'd kind of, you know, been going on my word and my word alone, which, you know, a lot of writers do in the early days, and you, you kind of have to do, and you kind of have to pers persist with. But it, it's weird, because when the use of happens, I, in a strange way, I felt more, I felt more proud that Windmills had achieved it than that I had achieved it, because... 
so many people had kind of rolled their eyes and said, oh, you know, you're never going to let go of windmills, let go of it, it's, it's pointless, it's never going to go anywhere. And it had, and it kind of was like the, I guess, the vindication I needed to be like, no, this story has worth, and the the value that I see in this story is absolutely there, I just need to keep working at it to uncover that. And so, yeah, so recently I've been working on um, reworking it as a novel, and that's sort of been a been an ongoing process back and forth thing and you know there, there's some stuff going on with that at the moment that I you know can't can't really go into detail with but I'm I'm reasonably optimistic about the chances of where that novel's going to go and that's kind of where we are now and it's been almost a 10 year long process to get to this point so so I, I look I don't know if windmills at this point is like a fallacy of sunk costs like I've just been working on it so long that I can't give up on it sure. but yeah. I'm but yeah I'm still working at it so we'll see what happens that's awesome to hear. And one of the things that really strikes me about that story is like, how did you keep yourself going through all those years working on it where you like, you weren't really getting that recognition on it? Like all those years before, obviously it won the Houston Ops. But how did you keep motivating yourself to writing it and developing it? Look, it's, um, I think, I think every writer would, would probably feel the same way on this. There are, there are stories you just can't let go of. There are stories you just can't not come back to. And I think with windmills, like, I'm, I'm not the kind of writer who, like, who needs a story to kind of get recognition to be satisfied with it. I mean, there are, there are a few stories that I've written that, you know, haven't really seen the light of day or haven't really gotten much attention from anyone. And I'm really proud of them because I look at them and I'm like, look, I achieved what I wanted to with that story. I'd love it to be read by somebody, but I'm quite comfortable to move on and work on something else. Whereas, like, with windmills, I think, because, like, over, you know, I mean, you can't spend 10 years on something without without kind of becoming intimately in love with the characters and the world and the themes and what you're trying to say. I mean, you know, by, by this point, the characters in Windmills I know so well, like, inside and out. And it, I guess, like, I always just had this sense that in every iteration, whether it was the early draft, whether it was the theatre version, whether it was the script version, whether it was um, the self-published version, in every version I had... I always, I guess, had this sense that I hadn't quite achieved what I wanted to achieve with it. And... I guess recently I've kind of realized that if the story is as, I guess, special as I obviously believe it is, then I can take the time to get it right, you know? Um, and I don't want to sort of rush out a project that isn't ready, but I, I guess, again, it could totally be a fallacy of some cost, but there is just this sense I've had for all of this time that there is something really special about this story and there is something really strong about this story that I just need to somehow tap into and bring it out. Sure. So that's really, yeah. So basically it's, it, would you say it's the themes that are kind of motivating you to keep working on it and everything? Yeah, it's, it's a few things. I mean, it's the themes, it's the characters. Like I said, you know, you kind of fall a bit in love with your characters after that long. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the themes, it's, it's, it's those themes of, you know, ambition. Like what are you, what are you willing to sacrifice for your own ambition? Um, what are you willing to sacrifice to save yourself? I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that adulthood comes at the point where you, see yourself clearly for the first time and you know i think i think we all have a crystallizing point as we grow up when we realize that we're not quite the people we thought we were and our self-perception isn't actually the person we are and that can be a very challenging realization that's kind of what windmills is about it's about these different characters being put in these in these situations that often are of their own doing and um you know it all starts with the nexus point of this party and then from there one choice leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And the way the book unfolds is very much like a domino effect of all of these, you know, terrible circumstances spiraling out of control because people get put in these impossible situations and every time make the wrong choice. And I think what I found so so juicy and exciting about that story was, you know, I mean, we're so used to stories where characters get put in tough situations and they do the right thing. 
Whereas I think nine times out of ten, if we get put in an impossible situation, we are going to do the wrong thing. We are going to do the self-preservation thing. We're going to follow our instincts and do something that we might not be proud of. And that the idea of these characters being forced to contend with who they are in the wake of that happening and the wake of them realizing who they really are, I, I just found so dramatically fascinating. And to like to delve into that without losing sight of the humanity of these people, without kind of, you know, seeing it in terms of heroes and villains, black and white, and to kind of be like, these are just people and these people are messing up in big ways. How do they contend with that? I, I think is just like something that will never not be relevant or will never not have a universal... I mean, not appeal. Appeal is probably a pretty strong word for something as dark as this, but um, but but sort of universal relevance, maybe. Sure. So, do you, when you kind of discover the theme for your story, do you like sort of write it down or anything, or do you like consciously try to improve it, or are you more someone who is interested in letting the theme organically grow? Oh, it's a tough one. Um, I, I guess it's like a bit of both. Like, I I used to not really think much about theme, and then I you know discover it as I went. But I do sort of find um, nowadays it's sort of, you know, I, I kind of nowadays I kind of need to have at least a rough idea of what the theme is. I mean, a rough idea of what the story is trying to say before I kind of really start writing in earnest. And I do find that that helps. I mean, I don't I don't know, because, you know, I guess in the past, like I didn't start writing Windmills, the first draft version of it with a with a clear idea of, you know, this is what the story is trying to say or anything like that. But um but, you know, over time, I think I kind of realized what it was trying to explore and what I was trying to say and what it all meant. And, you know, one thing at VCA that we, you know, got, got sort of drilled into us over and over again was the importance of having a prescribed theme that you stick to and that everything in your story can fall within. And at the time, I think I resisted that a bit because it seems at odds with my style, which was a bit more organic. But since then, I've become a little bit more like, not evangelical, but sort of willing to willing to kind of foreground a theme. And I find it, I find that I feel like I'm flying a little bit blind if I go into something without knowing what the theme is or without having, I guess, an idea of what the theme is. Like I don't need, you know, a, a finely detailed written thesis of everything that sort of is going on in the story and everything it's trying to say. But if I kind of go into it being like, okay, this story is trying to explore, you know, how we relate to the past. This story is kind of trying to explore how stories are created or how legends are formed or whatever. And then, you know, it kind of gives me, it gives me like, I guess, a guiding star to work towards. But within that I can explore more of the nuances of it and kind of maybe work out what I'm trying to say. If I sort of know what I'm trying to work towards, I can work out the detail of what it is that the story is trying to suggest in the process. So it's kind of 50-50. Like I don't really write down the themes at the start of anything, I guess, in answer to your question, but I definitely sort of know roughly what I'm working towards, but the details of it are something that I can work out as I go. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that pretty strongly. Like I know personally stories where I kind of have a bit of a clear idea of what the theme is, they just seem a lot easier to write that first draft. Yeah, I agree and, completely. Yeah. Like, I, I think I find that, you know, your, your first draft's almost, um... I, look, I, I found this kind of in, in... In my experience, first drafts do end up, I guess, a little bit... Like, a little bit stronger if you sort of know what the theme is and if you kind of stick to that all the way through. I mean, you know, and themes can change, too. Like, when you can realise halfway through writing something that the theme isn't what you thought it was. And, you know, that can often be that can often be like a really exciting, really kind of uh, organic, illuminating thing that can happen. But, um, but, but yeah, like I do think for a first draft, I, I've noticed since I've started foregrounding theme, I guess with a little bit more clarity and strength, I found that the themes, uh, that the, the, the work in its first pass is definitely stronger than it would be otherwise. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That, that's, a, that's an interesting insight. In terms of your writing process in general, like, what does it look like and how has it changed over the years? 
Um, I don't look. I don't do well unless I have like a rough plan of how something's going to go. Like, I mean, you know, if if I go for a couple of weeks without having you know written something or worked on something actively, then I kind of go a bit stir crazy, and you know, I I sort of look at I guess my back catalogue of stored away ideas that I haven't jumped into yet, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to work on that one, and then because you know I'm so antsy to get going, I'll sort of start writing it without having written out a plan or without having kind of thought it through a bit or anything, and. And then I always, I inevitably end up not getting past, like, the first thousand words. Um, so I kind of, nowadays what I try to do is, I guess because I've been, I've only been getting busier in the last couple of years. Like, it just sort of feels like month to month, I've just kind of got more and more things I have to juggle and I'm finding less and less time to work on the projects I really want to work on. So I try to kind of prescribe, this is what I'm going to work on at this time and then before I kind of start writing, I give myself a couple of weeks where, you know, it's like, because every day I, I like to take my dog for like a really long walk every day. And I always like leave my phone behind. I leave everything behind. I just take the dog, just the dog and the key so I can get back home. And I go for the walk and I just like give myself that time to sort of let the story start playing out in my head and let it start percolating and just start thinking through things. And, you know, often possibly muttering to myself as I walk and kind of getting <laughs> getting maybe weird <laughs> looks from other people walking their dogs on the same route. But, um, but yeah, so, so I sort of like, give myself a couple of weeks to sort of flesh the story out in my head, get a feel for it, get a feel for the ideas, the themes, the characters, work it out. And then I'll probably sit down and I'll write like a couple of paragraphs on each of the characters because like, I don't, I don't like to have a super detailed character breakdown when I go into something. I like to have a rough idea of, you know, what's going on with this character? What's their wound? What's, what's up with them? What, what is their personality like? How do they feel about certain things? Kind of get a rough idea of them so I can start writing them and then kind of discover the nuances and the depths of them as I write. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's like, um, Damien Robb, who used to be on Movie Maintenance with me, he always said, you know, there are two kinds of writers. There are the architects who plan everything meticulously, and there are discovery writers. But I, I feel like it's more of a, that's the binary, but most of us sit somewhere in the middle. Um, but you sure. can be more of a meticulous architect, or you can be more of a discovery writer. And I kind of feel like maybe I lean more towards the architect thing, and that I like to have a bit of a plan to work to, but I'm very flexible to that plan changing and developing and going in different ways as I work. So yeah, once I've kind of got that plan, once I feel like I've got a sense for the story, once I feel like I've got the voice, then I'm quite happy to just start writing and just go for it and see where it takes me. Interesting, yeah, because I suppose like, yeah, listening to some of the earlier movie maintenance episodes and um, a couple of the ones where you discussed kind of writing craft and everything, I always had the impression that you were very much like a, I don't know, Stephen King-esque discovery writer where you just kind of like go and let your story take you, but... It's cool to know that you do some outlining as well and that you kind of balance between those two. Yeah, I, I don't I don't like to have more than just like a, you know, a rough skeleton or a blueprint to work around. Like, I, I don't, I kind of would feel constrained if I had like a super set plot. I mean, some, some of the most like, some of the most rewarding moments I've ever had as a writer have come at moments where I've been writing a story and I've realized about halfway through that where I thought it was going was not where it was going. Or... Nice. What's going on with the cat? I mean, even Windmills is a prime example. You know, I had a, I had such a clear idea of how Windmills was going to end all the way through writing the very first draft when I was 17. And I just remember this moment where I was sitting there, you know, I think I was just about to start writing the last couple of chapters. And then suddenly I realized, I was like, hang on, that's not where this story goes. That is not where this story ends. And then it was it was like that, that weird, like, this is going to sound really, like, like pretentious and sort of, <laughs> like, I, I don't know what, like, this is going to sound like kind of a bit fanciful. But, um, but I, I just sort of, like, looked back over the draft and I realized that there was so much evidence in what had been written that seemed to be subconsciously pointing towards an ending that I had never planned and sort of realizing, getting to the point where I realized that that was the ending, not what I thought I had and sort of being open to that and not being like, it must stick to my prescribed plan, I think is a really healthy thing. Yeah, I love that idea of 
your own story being able to surprise you and pull like a plot twist on the writer themselves like that's such a fantastic experience yeah it's it's like it's a funny one i remember um it's almost like and again like it's 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 hard to say you know that when people say sort of like oh you know i don't i don't write the story the story writes itself and it's always you know you hear a lot of writers say that and it always kind of feels a little bit like a little bit like yeah right sure thing mate but it is, in some respects, it's kind of true. Like, I wrote a play a couple of years ago called Beyond Babylon, and it was sort of set in... I'd written a few plays set in the same universe, and this one was... um Basically, the idea was, like, set in this sort of dystopian far future where, you know, humanity's surviving these little pockets, and these pockets tend to be run by sort of, you know, giant drug cartels that have control over everything. And, you know, there's rules of, like, population control where if you, if you don't serve a purpose in the society, you just get put to death. And Beyond Babylon was this two-hander play about these two characters who um, basically one of them is on the run from population control and the other one is working as an enforcer for the cartel who sort of run everything. And she tracks him down and basically says to him, you've got 45 minutes to convince me why I shouldn't kill you. Like, convince me why your life is worthwhile. Convince me why you have worth. And it's sort of like a play that, you know, is very much about, like, kind of, you know, dissecting the themes of, uh, you know, what is your life worth if you don't contribute anything to society, all of that. And um, and what it was kind of meant to land on was that the, the female character who was the enforcer, she was a holdover from one of the previous plays in which play she'd kind of failed to see out one of her jobs because her humanity kind of got the better of her. So in my head, I was writing the story that was going to be about her kind of at the end of it having this tragic moment where she has every reason not to kill this guy, but she does it because she's kind of decided this is the person I am, this is what I'm going to do. And as the play went on... Um, I had this realization about halfway through, no, not even that, like probably about like, you know, two thirds into the play where I was writing it and there was this line where, you know, she says to him something along the lines of, oh, you know, if, if you want to get out of this alive, you have to be smart about this. And suddenly I just kind of stopped and I sat back from the screen. I stared at it and I was like, oh no, you were smart about this, weren't you? And then I realized that the guy who was this sort of guy who was on the run and this fugitive was a cartel enforcer himself undercover testing her to see if she would actually go through with the job. Nice. And it just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And so then it ended up being this massive twist at the end. And then I remember so many people coming up to me after that play being like, oh dude, what an amazing twist. That was so brilliant. And I was like, I, I wish I could feel like I could take credit for it, but I just can't because like, I didn't start writing it with this like meticulously planned twist that I was going to spring on the audience and blow them away. Like it surprised me as much as it surprised everybody else. But sometimes you just have those moments and that, that kind of is like, I guess, the best thing about writing is like when it surprises you and when you feel like you're getting pulled along and being sort of caught up in your own story, that that's the most fun of it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting you bring that up because like in another one of your plays, Heroes, which you did an audio drama on movie maintenance, like that is another play that's full of twists. Did a lot of those come in the same way organically or did you plan well, them out from the start? Heroes is a funny one because... um. That, that is another case where the ending was not planned. Um, it was actually meant to end a bit earlier. It was meant to end with, um, if, if you've listened to Heroes, uh, so I'm trying, I'm trying to find a way to like talk around it without spoiling the ending. <laughs> but um, for those who've listened to Heroes, it, it has like quite a, it's, it's got like a very distinctive ending. Um, and, the, and the ending kind of, you know, makes a, makes a big point about everything you've seen beforehand. Like it, it's, it's a bit of a twist. Like it's not a, I don't know if I'd call it a twist so much as a like kind of middle finger to to the characters but um but yeah it was heroes was actually meant to end about five minutes earlier than it was and i got to that point and i had this final line in my head and i wrote that final line and as i wrote it i was like that just doesn't kind of have the impact i thought it had and i kind of sat there looking at it being like i was so enraptured in writing this play but i've hit the ending and i'm just not satisfied by the ending and then i went for a walk to kind of you know clear my head and think about it and then it hit me 
I was like, oh no, that's what the ending was. And again, it was another like weird case where I looked back at it and I was like, oh man, there are like, there are lots of clues as to where this was going to go, like all the way through this that I kind of hadn't realized. Or, or, you know, like, I guess in retrospect, these, you know, lines that were written without much attention or thought suddenly seem to take on new significance when they don't really have it. But it's a, yeah, it's a cool idea that I guess, you know, your subconscious is directing you towards something that you might not realize until the moment you actually put the words on paper. Yeah, it kind of just sort of offloads some of the, the heavy lifting for your conscious mind, I guess. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'll, I'll take it. It makes life easier. Exactly. In the, on, on the topic of playwriting, um, what has all the extensive plays that you've written, like, what have they taught you about novel writing? Um, see, like, I, I would... I say this to a few people. I, I really believe that the best baptism by fire that a writer can undergo is to write theatre. And... The reason for that is that, you know, obviously if you try to write, you know, I mean, I think everybody who's kind of in love with the sort of aesthetic of being a writer or the idea of being a writer always goes to either screenwriting or novel writing. But the thing about them is, you know, with with novel writing, you kind of, you've got to try to find an agent, you've got to try to find a publisher, you've got to find try to find somebody who takes you seriously. And that that's really, really hard. Um, and with screenwriting, it's like exactly the same thing, except the stakes are a lot higher because films cost a lot more than publishing a book does. Um... But with playwriting, you know, you can, most theatre that will go on in any given city is independent. You know, it will be with, like, independent companies, or you can start your own company. There are plenty of theatres around the place that, you know, will um will offer you, like, a 50-50 profit share deal where you can go in with absolutely no risk. I mean, if you do a play that has no budget and it's four chairs on a stage and a table and four actors, then, um, and you sell one ticket, then, you know, you're pretty much in profit. So, you know, you can, theatre is quite an easy thing to do, and... You know, you, you've all got friends, you've all got family, all the cast members have friends, you will get an audience. So if you, you know, you put on a play, you get an audience, and then if you sit in the audience and you watch how the audience responds to what you put on stage, you realise very quickly what works and what doesn't work. Because if you send a novel to somebody to read and say, hey, give me some feedback, that person goes away, they reads it. You're not, you're not seeing their reactions in the moment. You're not seeing how they respond to it in the moment. All you get is when they come back and they've thought about how to tell you nicely what they thought, or they've decided to lie to your face or whatever... And it's, it's very, very hard to actually gauge um, the raw reaction that somebody has to reading a book of yours or to reading a screenplay of yours. Whereas in a play, there's no escaping it. You're sitting in the audience, you're surrounded by the audience. And if one of your lines doesn't land, if you've got like a clunky bit of dialogue in there, if you have jokes that aren't funny, um, if you have emotional beats that aren't landing or, you know, your tension isn't building properly, you will see that. You'll see the people yawning. You'll see the people shuffling in their seats. You might, you know, see somebody walk out halfway through. You know, there, there's no escaping that. And you can also kind of feel the energy in the room of, like, how focused somebody is or how transfixed somebody is. So it's it's a really fast way to learn what works and what doesn't work. I mean, you know, my, my really early plays, I remember always being kind of surprised by the emotional stuff that, you know, wouldn't land, but then the humorous stuff that did land. And then from there, I was kind of like, okay, so people seem to enjoy this kind of dialogue, maybe write more towards this. And then, you know, you sort of see the response kind of grow a bit in the next version, the next version, the next version. But um, yeah, I would say theater taught me, it absolutely taught me how to write dialogue more than anything else. Um, because, you know, I mean, theater is 90% dialogue. And, you know, if your dialogue isn't working, your play's not working. But um, outside of that, it also kind of, yeah, it also kind of taught me about, like, kind of how to keep a story moving, how to keep a story engaging, um, how to kind of not get bogged down in... Because, I mean, in theatre, because it's dialogue, you know, you have... You, there is an inclination to kind of have characters sort of blatantly just discuss the themes of the play, and I'm as guilty of that as anyone. But 
you do realize how to, you do learn very quickly how to make that work and how to make that, and, and when it doesn't work. So it, it, it certainly doesn't teach you everything you need to know about writing novels, but it teaches you a hell of a lot. Yeah, I think your dialogue's definitely one of my favorite parts about your writing. And I know in the Boone Shepherd series, it's definitely one of the funnest points when you have that kind of like really witty back and forth dialogue between like Boone and Promethea and, you know, the other characters in there as well. On the topic of Boone, like, you've got the final uh, novel in the Boone Shepherd trilogy coming out in a couple of months. How do you feel about that? Oh, it's a... It's weird. It's like, I don't think it's... I don't think it's kind of hit me yet. Like, it... Because, I mean, like, for context, I wrote the Boone Shepherd books in more or less their current form about four years ago. Um, I mean, not, not like in their... Because obviously they've undergone heaps of rewriting. And American Adventure in particular was heavily, heavily revised. Um, like, most of that was rewritten from the version I wrote a couple of years... A few years ago. But, um, but like, I guess, you know, it was probably in... In probably around 2014 was when I was, like, completely head over heels in the Boone universe. Or the Booniverse, rather. And, um, and you know, then coming into... Leading up to the publication of the first book, I was kind of very into it. But, I mean, publication is a tough one because, you know, I mean, you'll finish a draft of something and you'll send it to, to, you know, the editor and the editor will send it back to you and they'll be like, no, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. And you end up kind of going over it over and over and over again. So by the time the book actually goes to print, you end up just kind of a bit fed up with it. You kind of hate it a little bit. And sort of having kind of undergone that process twice with Boone Shepard and Boone Shepard's American Adventure, and then because The Silhouette and Sacrifice sort of took a little bit longer, and because it was originally planned as two books, as book three and book four, and then we decided to merge them because, you know, the two books by themselves didn't, didn't quite have enough material to make it work. And we sort of thought, hey, look, going out in like one big final book and making a trilogy sort of seemed to make sense. Um, it seemed like kind of the more pragmatic way to do it. Um, there, there was like a lot, of, a lot more work had to go into like tying this one together to make it cohesive as a novel. And, and so I, I kind of hit this point where like I got a little bit sick of it. And I'm like it sort of becomes, it becomes like a job, you know? I mean, you hit, you hit points where, you know, the editor sends back to say, hey, you've got to rewrite all of these scenes. And the writing Boone Shepherd is especially tough because it requires a really particular voice and it requires a really particular headspace. I mean, like, I remember starting to do rewrites on American Adventure right after the first book was published and I just couldn't find the voice. I couldn't, the banter you mentioned with Boone and Prometheus, it just wasn't coming. I was, like, trying to make up funny lines for them and it doesn't work that way. You kind of just have to, like, write it naturally and let them bounce off each other a bit. And so, and so like, you know, what I, one thing I did between Boone Shepard and American Adventure coming out was I went away and I wrote a whole bunch of just short stories about the characters. And it was just like short stories where Boone and Promethea go to Loch Ness or, you know, Promethea becomes a pirate captain and Boone has to like get in there and stop her or, you know, little bits and pieces. And, you know, I mean, there, a lot of them are available on the Bell, either the Bellfrog Books website or my website. And a lot of them haven't been published yet. But I found that as kind of a really nice low stakes way to get back into the world and be like, I'm just going to go away and write this story. And if it sees the light of day, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I don't care. It's just kind of a chance for me to have fun with the characters. And that can kind of really help you bring the voice back very quickly. So I had to kind of adopt a lot of techniques like that when it comes to sort of rewriting the Boone Shepherd books and to kind of stave off the sort of growing hatred of the series. So all of that's an incredibly long-winded way of saying, I don't know how I feel at this point. Like... I'm I'm conscious of the fact that like obviously I'm I'm very very proud of the final book and I'm very very proud of the work I've put in and I want to get it right but there is part of me that is just a little bit tired of these books and a little bit tired of this world because it's just been so much work of the last three years and and more than that the last kind of four years so 
I guess check in with me again when the book's out because I kind of feel like when it's printed and I'm holding it in my hands and the three books are sitting together on my shelf and it's like here is a finished story, I'm going to feel a lot differently to how I feel now. But right now, to be honest, I don't feel very much. I feel kind of a little bit burnt out with it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Especially, if, yeah, like you said, you spend so many years immersed in it. Yeah, and it's and it just it, it like you know every every it's not like something where you can just come in and be like oh, I'm just going to rewrite. It's like every rewrite requires like almost a ritual to kind of get yourself back in the headspace. Like write a short story as Boone, or reread all the short stories as Boone, or like of or like you know just find a way to put your head back into this world that has been distant for so long. Um, because I mean, as you know, you've read the books. The Boone Shepherd books have a very particular tone and a very particular kind of style that's like not quite farcical but not quite 100% serious at the same time and sort of you know there is there is emotion and poignancy and depth to it but at the same time it's a has a running joke about manatees and there's all kinds of ridiculous things going on and there's a scene where he meets Elvis Presley and Elvis speaks only in quotes from Elvis songs and so like it's a it's a really tricky tone to balance you know yeah definitely what does your revision process look like in general and this is a completely selfish question because I'm in the middle of middle of fourth draft edits on my current novel so, like, what kind of things do you go through for each revision? Um, so, I've, I've kind of... I really think that writers need to... In, in a perfect world, I think you would finish the draft of something, you would put it in a drawer, and you wouldn't touch it for a year. Um, because you really need to come back at something with that fresh perspective. But, obviously, you know, reality doesn't really allow you to do that. So, so what I normally do is I, like, I finish the first draft, and then I kind of give it a few days and then I read through the whole thing from start. So I probably give it like one or two weeks upon finishing the first draft. And I kind of read through the whole thing from start to finish and I kind of make any changes and sort of, I, um, I tear out anything that's superfluous or unnecessary or whatever and kind of, you know, streamline and refine it a bit and everything. And then I'll send it to a couple of friends, like maybe three or four friends to like who are writers and who I know are honest and kind of get their feedback and their, and what they have to say and everything. And then I'll go back and I'll, you know, either take the feedback on board or not and sort of, you know, apply it and work through it and everything. And then when I'm done with that and I've kind of, you know, got a significantly reworked draft, I will send it to another round of people and another round of people because I think it's like, I used to have a tendency of finishing a draft of something and then sending it to every friend I knew who might be interested in reading it. And that's not really a great idea because even if you have those, and I I do have a couple of these friends, I'm very lucky to have them, those kind of amazing friends who are willing to read every new draft... By the time you're on to, you know, the third or fifth revision, you you can't see the story with fresh eyes anymore. So I'm kind of meticulous about making sure I take my time on it and make sure I don't send it to everyone at once because, you know, you want a couple of people to see the first draft, then a couple of people to see the second, a couple of people to see the third draft and kind of, you know, then take notes of the, the feedback that crosses over, make notes of what they say that's similar and kind of, you know, just sort of work through every step. And then once you're past that point, that's when I'd look at getting a professional um, assessment from an uh, from an outside pair of eyes. So whether it's like a manuscript assessment or whatever, get somebody who's in the industry who you know doesn't know you to maybe do like a completely anonymous assessment of it, um, which you can pay for and everything, and can tend to be really expensive, but are never less than extremely valuable. And then kind of work from there to sort of refine it as good as possible. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's definitely a. Uh very like thorough process and I love the idea about yeah putting it away for a bit and that definitely does help come back with fresh eyes and everything to it yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm very lucky in that you know I do a bit of um I do a bit of uh creative writing tutoring work at the moment as well and I've got 
like for example, my most recent manuscript, I finished Nelson the Gallagher, which is sort of a coming of age, young adult, uh, dramedy type story. Um, I work with a few kids who are the age of the character, who are like 14 and 15. And so it's been really good to actually be able to give them the manuscript and be like, look, you're the target audience for this. What do you think of this? Because like, you know, I'm getting a ton of adult perspectives on it and that's super helpful, but you're the target audience. What do you think? Does this work? Is this the kind of thing you would read? And that's, and also, you know, I mean, kids and teenagers are not as good as adults, uh, not as good um, as us as uh, disguising how they feel about things. So if things don't work, they'll tend to just tell you, which is extremely valuable. Yeah, right. I've got another um, meta question, low-key selfish question for you here. Uh, when it comes to podcasts about writing, based on your movie maintenance experience, what makes a good show? In podcasting? Yes. Uh, it's... This is going to sound like a really weird answer, given okay. what I'm most well-known for, but... I'm probably the wrong person to ask about podcasts because I don't listen to that many podcasts and I never really have. Um, I stumbled into movie maintenance purely by merit of knowing people at Sans Pants Radio and kind of lucked out from there. And I kind of fell into it and, you know, obviously I loved it and it was a fantastic experience from which I learned a huge amount. But, like, outside of really, you know, like, Serial and S-Town and sort of, you know episodes here and there of other podcasts. I really don't listen to that many podcasts, which is a terrible thing to say considering, you know, I'm probably most well-known as a podcaster. But, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess, like, with movie maintenance, you know, we we always felt a bit better about it if we kept the episodes fairly short, fairly tight. We had less waffle if we kind of got to the point quickly. Um, obviously, if we had... Movie maintenance was so built around the pitches that we did and having a really good pitch was obviously, like, a really big part of it. But, um... But honestly, no, outside of that, like, it, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of hard for me to say from an objective standpoint, because I don't, I mean, I, I definitely don't like podcasts that feel, and I mean, look, I'm sure that there were some, if not many points where movie maintenance kind of fell into this trap, but I'm, I'm not a big fan of podcasts that, you know, are very in-jokey, and I think a lot of mistakes that people make when they're starting out podcasting, and, you know, I've listened to a few podcasts from, you know, people I know or people I'm adjacent to, and I've sort of, I hear their early shows, and when it's a bunch of mates, often the best way to start a podcast is not to just have a bunch of mates sitting around making jokes because you're inevitably going to slip into in-jokes. You're inevitably going to slip into references about what Jack did last Friday night that was so crazy and funny, but all can't talk about it on air. And and that is really tedious for an audience to listen to because, you know, I mean, the thing about podcasting that I think is really important is that because you're sitting there listening to somebody, there is like an inherent intimacy to it. And if you're sitting there listening to a conversation, you kind of feel a bit like you're part of that conversation. Like you're sitting there in a room listening to a bunch of friends talking, if, if it's done well. And you kind of, and from that, you know, the audience really needs to build a rapport with the people they're listening to. And they kind of need to feel like they know the people they're listening to. And if you kind of come in, it's just a bunch of mates sort of, you know, cracking jokes that they think are funny, then there's kind of nothing that makes me turn off quicker than if I'm like, I don't know who you, I don't know why you're funny. I don't know what this joke is. I don't know what you're referencing. Like what? I, I don't care. Like just stop. Um, I think it's almost better to have like people who aren't really friends starting a podcast together and then sort of build the rapport from there so that your listeners can kind of get to know you as you get to know each other, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Like none of those immanity in jokes because that just puts a lot of people off. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, uh, just a couple of quick rapid-fire questions before we go into our analysis of Red Dragon. So, what are the top five books that you think all writers should read? Oh, um, 
Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, look, I, I know it's a, I know it's a massive cliche, but I, I genuinely believe that, and just this also comes from sort of working with kids and kind of having common ground. But I, I really believe that there is a reason that Harry Potter is as successful as it is, and I really do believe that, um, that Harry Potter is worth reading and worth studying because there is so much that J.K. Rowling just understands inherently about story. And it just is done, it's done with like such, such, such kind of seeming effortlessness that I really think there's a lot that you can learn from that. Um, outside of that, I mean, it, it sort of starts veering into a matter of personal taste, you know? I mean, like, like I love Red Dragon. It's one of my all-time favorite books. I love The Book of Joe by Jonathan Tropper. That's kind of another one of my absolute all-time favorites. But I wouldn't... I wouldn't. The Book of Joe is a, a book that I love for very personal reasons. It's not a book that I would foreground as something that you absolutely need to read to learn a lesson about it, about writing. Um, look, I, I feel like in a week's time I'm going to be like, oh crap, I should have said that one. Or I should have said that one. But I mean, if you if you want to write crime, definitely read Red Dragon because it has so many lessons in there to learn. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah um, Harry Potter, sure. Uh, the picture of Dorian Gray I love, but I don't know if I would put that forward as something that has, you know, really amazing lessons in there to learn. Um, I'm just kind of looking at... I'm sitting right next to my bookshelf right now, and I'm looking at, like, my top shelf of all my favourite books, um, which is half taken up with the entire Lemony Snicket library. Um, uh, I think if you want to write young adult, then go to John Marsden Tomorrow When the War Began, because... He's somebody who taught me a huge amount about writing, and particularly writing for young adults, because, you know, you kids kids can kind of sense from a mile off when they're being condescended to. And John Marsden was the master of writing for young people without ever making it feel condescending, while making it feel relatable, while making it feel like, you know, the issues and problems and the things that they might relate to had value and were worth talking about. And that was kind of revolutionary when you're dealing with, like, lots of books that people recommend you that just sort of, you know, treat teenage issues like they're not important and whether they are important or not is up to you. But when you're that age, they feel important. And it, I, I think it's important that there are books that represent that. Um, again, it, it's a funny one because I gravitate to my favorite books, but my favorite books wouldn't necessarily be ones that I think teach you that much. I mean, on the road, I, I don't think there are, I think the mistake a lot of young writers make is tr- like that. I definitely made when I was about 16 is like trying to write like Jack Kerouac when you, you can't because it's so, distinctive and singular um the song of ice and fire series is probably the high benchmark for fantasy um i mean patrick rothfuss i know i know i've listened to your episode on name of the wind and i just finished reading the wise man's fear about three days ago and I, i think patrick rothfuss is fantastic but i also think that he has a tendency towards flowery overwriting that he makes work but i would caution young writers from trying to tackle themselves because you know, you need to be incredibly gifted to make that kind of flowery, verbose prose not seem pretentious. And I think Rothfuss walks that line really well, but it's a very hard line to walk. Definitely, um, yeah. yeah, look, I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you for that. Um, no, that's pretty good. I think I've written down eight books or so. so I'll yeah, cool, yeah, sorry. So I, I know that I can, like, go on and be super long-winded, so I do apologize for that and apologize <laughs> for listeners for that. <laughs> All right. Um, what's your... This is another one of the real quick questions, then we'll go to analyzing Red Dragon. What do you think is your biggest strength as a writer and your biggest weakness as a writer? Oh, that is a that is a really good question. Um, I, I 
I think that I... I think that it, in some ways it's almost the same thing. Um, I think that I'm really good at writing dialogue, but I think that I can definitely become a little bit in love with the sound of my own dialogue, if that makes sense. Like, I definitely have found in developing theatre works of mine that dialogue that I thought was really witty and fantastic and entertaining banter is actually just really tedious and insufferable when you kind of hear it read by actors and it sort of goes on for too long. So, um... I think I definitely have a tendency towards overriding, particularly when it comes to dialogue, that I have to pare back. Um, but I also do think that my dialogue at its best can be really, really strong. Um, I think I'm really good at writing twists, and but I also think at the same time I can... I, I, apart from in the cases where the twists sort of come organically that we were talking about earlier, if I'm writing a story that I know is working towards a really cool twist or a really explosive finale, I can kind of let everything else fall by the wayside and let the plot drag a bit in the lead up to that. That's definitely a weakness I have. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, like, yeah, th- those things are kind of, yeah, that, that's stuff that, you know, you, you pair away with editing and if you have sort of really honest friends who are willing to kind of bail you up and and show you where you're kind of going wrong um it is it is hopefully stuff that i can address i guess with each coming draft if that makes sense but um but yeah i mean it's, it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to say that like you know to positively or negatively appraise yourself to kind of look at it and be like you know what works and what doesn't work um i mean i have my ideas of what works and what doesn't work but i mean it's like you know you how many times you know do you you are you you know you're writing theater and then you get surprised by a review that calls out all these problems that you just didn't know were there um so yeah, it's, it's a very, I think, I think you know, writing, writing's, it's a tough thing because it's like, I think I've written this metaphor in a blog somewhere, or similarly in a blog somewhere, it's like, you know, if you're an audience, you're, you're looking at a tree. If you're the writer, you have a better understanding of the tree because you can see the roots, you can see the bugs, and you can see everything that goes into it, but you can't actually see what the tree looks like from the outside. So it's, yeah, it's a really, really tough thing to criticize or to, to look at. Yeah, and I suppose if you could have like a 100% self-criticism of your your work then you wouldn't need editors which is obviously not going to happen and also like i kind of feel like you know being being unafraid to make mistakes is or not being unafraid like you know being accepting of the fact that you probably will make mistakes and you probably will screw up here and there is is really important i mean you know like i i know that the successes i've had but also the failures i've had have all come from you know sort of being not really having much in the way of caution, just kind of being quite willing to like throw things out there and sort of, you know, chase artistic whims and sort of see where they go. And sometimes that's really paid off for me. And more than more often than not, it's blown up in my face. But the lessons I've learned have been extremely valuable from that. So I kind of think that, you know, if you're if you're hundred percent self-critical and you know all of your strengths and weaknesses, you often don't discover things that will surprise you. If you're kind of willing to fall on your face every now and then you're willing to kind of put something out there that isn't amazing. But I mean you should always strive to, of course. But if you're kind of, if you can be open to the fact that there might be a glaring, egregious flaw that you might not know is there, then that can um, that can actually help you discover gold sometimes, if that makes sense. Like purely by yeah, accident. Yeah, failure is definitely something that can, yeah, really help you develop as a writer. Now, Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. Would you like to introduce the book since it's one of your favorites? So Red Dragon by Thomas Harris um, is the first book that features Hannibal Lecter. So it was written in 1986, I believe, or released in 1986, I believe. And um, yeah, basically it tells the story of Will Graham, who's an FBI, a retired FBI investigator. Um, Will Graham has an incredible gift of getting into the minds of serial killers. 
Um, the, the idea is that he has such advanced empathy that he can adopt the viewpoints of um, of people who might even scare or sicken him. But what kind of really torments Will Graham is that he, he's got this terrifying idea that because he can understand these perspectives so well, there might actually be that kind of darkness growing inside him. And Will Graham sort of left the force after he caught Hannibal Lecter a few years before the opening of the book. And the book starts with him being caught out, caught out of retirement to um, to hunt down a killer known as the Red Dragon, who's been murdering whole families. And in order to gain the right perspective to find the Red Dragon, he consults with Hannibal Lecter again, who's behind bars. And Hannibal starts pulling strings to kind of pit Hannibal, to, to basically draw the Red Dragon out and pit him against Will Graham. And so it kind of becomes this sort of three-way battle between these three different characters of Francis Dollarhide, the serial killer known as the Red Dragon, Hannibal Lecter, who I think only appears in two scenes in the whole novel, and Will Graham, who is an immensely fascinating character. To you, what is the biggest lesson that Red Dragon has to teach writers? So the biggest lesson that I learned from Red Dragon, and this, this kind of, um, this sort of speaks to the Hannibal Lecter series in general, is that, I mean, you know, if you mention Hannibal Lecter to people, they're like, oh, you know, the cannibal, or, you know, they'll be like, oh, you know, they ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti, or, or whatever. Um, you know, people, people know Science of Lambs. People know Hannibal Lecter, they know the cliches, they know all of that stuff. Um, what I find so fascinating about the Hannibal books, and what I think really intoxicated me about them when I was, like, 13 and I read them for the first time, and kind of, I think the recent TV series captured it so beautifully, is the fact that the series, actually at its heart, is about... Um, is about the nuances and vagaries of human connection, and predominantly love. Um, and love is kind of what characterizes the whole story in every iteration. I mean, the most surprising thing in Red Dragon is that, you know, you've got this horrible serial killer who murders whole families and does terrible things to the bodies and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a terrifying, reprehensible, horrifying character. But there's an extended part in the book where you follow just Francis Dollarhide and you follow him basically going about his life and you follow this really surprisingly tender romance he has with this blind woman, Reba McLean. And a lot of Dollarhide's, um, I guess Dollarhide's demons come from the fact that he, you know, he was born with a hair lip and he was tormented for that when he was a kid growing up in an orphanage and he believes he's disfigured. He believes he's this disgusting freak and the reason he kind of wants to be seen as the great red dragon is that he kind of wants to transform into this terrifying creature who nobody can ever laugh at. And when he meets Reba McLean, and, and the thing is Dollarhide's, you know, had surgery, you can't even tell that anything's wrong with his face, but in his head there's something wrong with his face. And when he meets and falls in love with Reba McLean, um, she's blind, and so for the first time he can actually be himself, and he can actually be himself without putting this guard up. And it becomes this, like, incredibly tender romance between this blind woman and this serial killer. And what I think blew my mind so much when I was a kid was realizing that Dollarhide wasn't a villain, that I didn't hate Dollarhide, that I wasn't reading the book rooting for Will Graham to come in and, you know, shoot him dead and put an end to that murderer. Like, I I kind of felt for Dollarhide. Like, I felt terribly sorry for him. And that's kind of, I think, the genius of what Thomas Harris does, is that in all of the books, there aren't... He doesn't really treat the characters as heroes or villains. He treats them as people. And no matter how sort of messed up or awful they are... They still crave and want human connection. And there's an idea in Red Dragon that sort of suggested a lot and, you know, circumstances line up to make it not happen, which is that love and human connection can actually potentially redeem a monster. I mean, Dollarhide is somebody who was brought up with absolutely no love, and then when he finds love, it completely unbalances his world and leaves him in a position where he legitimately wants to stop killing, but he can't, and then circumstances line up and they... So, I mean, the idea that 
this is a book where you almost feel more sympathy for ostensibly the villain or the antagonist of the series than you might for the hero. I mean, because Will Graham is kind of a terrifying character in his own right, because you don't know if he's kind of as bad as everybody else. Uh, uh, sorry, as bad as the killers he's trying to hunt. And then, you know, the Red Dragon provides like a really strong foundation for what in Science of the Lambs and Hannibal goes on to be kind of an exploration of, you know, the, this kind of human connection and love that Hannibal Lecter himself craves or that Clarice Starling craves and how those things affect us. So I, I guess the biggest lesson in Red Dragon is not to treat your villains as villains. They're, they're human beings. No matter how reprehensible or terrible they are, they're human beings and you can, you can acknowledge that and you can depict that without lionizing them, you know? You can, you can condemn their actions and you can be like, this person has to be stopped but your villains will always be more compelling if they are human. And your heroes will always be more compelling if they are flawed or if they have some deep darkness they have to overcome. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, the um, Thomas Harris is kind of working in that gray area of morality really makes the series, you know, quite a phenomenal read. And I think, you know, part of that as well is you kind of almost root for the villains because they're so charismatic in some sort of situations yeah. like Hannibal Lecter. You know, obviously he's reprehensible, but you're like, oh, how's he going to, like, manipulate this person in this situation? How's he going to, like, you know, get his way out of this situation? Well, you know, there, there's a few, I mean, not not criticism, but there there is, like, an awareness that when it came to the novel Hannibal, um, the third novel in the series, Thomas Harris had kind of fallen in love with Hannibal Lecter, who, you know, was kind of this villainous monster up until this point, but he literally had to, dis- he literally had to introduce a facially disfigured pedophile to be the villain of that book so that there was somebody who we could hate so that we could actually kind of root for Hannibal to destroy this guy. So, you know, it's, I mean, yeah, Hannibal, Hannibal is compelling and he is charismatic and he is interesting. And I I don't think reading Red Dragon that Thomas Harris actually intended him to have quite the impact or the nuance that he ended up having. And I mean, you know, you can, you can see that sort of, um, you can see that kind of rise and falls. Like Hannibal's sort of a bit part villain in Red Dragon. He's kind of, you know, a major figure in Science of the Lambs. He's the main character of Hannibal. And then by the time you get to Hannibal Rising, he's completely reconfigured as this sort of vigilante hero. And it doesn't work at all. And it kind of ruins what made the character compelling. But, um, but I mean, yeah, like, you know, it, that, that's just kind of going too far with it. But, but in Red Dragon, he balances so beautifully this idea that all of these characters are human. None of these characters are perfect. Nobody's pure evil. I mean, I think it's even, I've got, sorry, I've got it sitting right here, but, um, but it's like in the in the William Blake poem he includes where he says, you know, for mercy has a human heart, pity a human face, and love the human form divine, and peace the human dress. Cruelty has a human heart, and jealousy a human face, terror the human form divine, and secrecy the human dress. The human dress is forged iron, the human form is a fiery forge, the human face is a furnace sealed, the human heart is a hungry gorge. I mean, within that you can you can read the the ideas that characterize the whole series, really. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think it's it's really interesting the way he kind of has those Blake references in there as well. It almost elevates the story to like a, a mythical level. Yes, and that's one of the things that I love about the Hannibal mythos and I love about um, what the television series went on to really lean into is kind of playing with the the allegorical sort of... I mean, Brian Fuller, you know, openly said that his vision of Hannibal Lecter in the TV series is basically Lucifer. And, you know, you can you can see that in the show. And, and you know, I, th- I think the in what Thomas Harris has put down as kind of the fundamental holy text of this franchise, um, there is definitely room to read that into it, you know? 
Um, the, the other lesson that I think Red Dragon has to teach that is a much more minor one is when it comes to opening a story. And, you know, I've, I've said a few times, I've said, I think, in blogs and, I, and a few different things, you know, there's a few different ways you can open a story. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of writers try to try to go for kind of an immediately catchy or an immediately profound or, you know, some, some like, really witty opening line or something that immediately grabs the audience in or, or whatever. And I, I think, we, you know, we all agonize over our opening lines. But I remember even just, like, as a kid reading the opening line of Red Dragon and being like, hang on, because the opening line of Red Dragon, and I'll read it out loud, is literally, Will Graham sat Crawford down at a picnic table between the house and the ocean and gave him a glass of iced tea. And that's it. It doesn't tell you who Will Graham is. It doesn't tell you who Jack Crawford is. It doesn't tell you where they are. It doesn't tell you what they're talking about. It doesn't even give you Crawford's first name. But weirdly, it almost pulls you in so much more effortlessly than anything else because straight away you have all those questions. Where are they? Who are these guys? What are they talking about? Who's Jack Crawford? What's going on? It just jumps straight in. And, you know, there's no, like, thematic depth, that opening line. There's no, you know, it's not trying to say anything super clever. It's not trying to be super punchy. It's not opening with the ending of the story to try to reel you in. It's just diving straight in. And I, I really respect that. And I think that, you know, more writers could stand to learn from, from a kind of opening that just drops you straight into the action and just lets you play catch up from there. Yeah, I know. It's actually one of the points I've gotten written down in my notebook about what I enjoy in the, the story so much. <laughs> it's funny you brought it up. Yeah, it's it's I just yeah. I think there's a, there's a huge amount to learn from that. Yeah, definitely. Um, Gabe, I know you're a busy guy. Last question before I let you go: What's next after Boone Shepherd? What are you working on at the moment? I know there's probably some things you can't talk about, but yeah, there's look, there's a few things I can't. Yeah, there's a few things I can't really talk about at the moment. Not not so much from a perspective of um, of you know, oh, there's some like some huge secret project going on or whatever, but more from the perspective of you know, there's there's just stuff that's kind of bubbling along that like I don't. I don't want to sort of, I don't want to prematurely announce or whatever, you know, I just kind of want Absolutely, to see what's going to happen yeah. with it. Um, but yeah, uh, so I finished, um, I finished a, about, I, I've done a third draft of Nelson the Gallagher, which is this coming of age story I wrote earlier this year that I'm, I'm really, really proud of. So we'll kind of see what happens with that. Um, I've also been, I'm about halfway through, if people who listen to Movie Maintenance or Movie Maintenance Presents, um, there was a novella that I released through Movements Presents called Sunburn Country. Um, I'm, oh, thank you. Um, so I'm partway through developing that into a full novel. So yes. what oh, I'm that's so good to hear. Sorry to jump in. No, thanks. Oh, oh thanks, man. Um, no, no. So what I'm doing with it is basically, if you know Sunburn Country, um, the novel opens with it's set in a roadhouse in the middle of like a desert highway, and the main character is like an Iraq veteran who's living there with his granddaughter, and he's just kind of you know trying to kind of stay out of trouble. And then, basically, uh, as, as sort of evening falls, this car kind of, like, wildly pulls out of the front, door opens, and this girl steps out, covered in mud, limping, holding a shotgun, and she collapses. And they kind of, like, bring her into the roadhouse, and they're like, what, what the hell happened to her? And then as night falls, all these headlights surround them and kind of hem them in. And then, basically, it's this siege story where they're like, what, who is this girl? What has she done? What's going on? And interspersed with this siege story, you get the flashbacks to what actually happened to her, which was the original Sunburnt Country novella. Um, so the original novella, which is still free to listen to, um, on the Movie Maintenance Presents feed, um, kind of constitutes sort of the flashbacks in, in this kind of reworking of it that's kind of more or less like an assault on Precinct 13 sort of siege story about these, um, characters trying to survive the night against horrible forces. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm writing at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm 
so yeah, uh, Moonlight, which was my musical. Um, so I co-wrote that. It's a bluegrass musical about Captain Moonlight, who was a real life gay bush ranger who had the most amazing life story. Um, that is currently that that's um, been selected for a really. Uh, Really exciting development initiative, um, the Homegrown Grassroots Program. And so that's, there's a couple of, I don't know when this episode's going live, but on, that, that's getting, there's a couple of songs from Moonlight getting performed from a, in a homegrown concert on September the 16th at Chapel Off Chapel. And then there's going to be like a development session a bit later in the year. And then the recording of the radio play, which will be released at some point. Um, so yeah, so Moonlight's kind of an ongoing thing and there's some really exciting stuff happening on that front. Um, for people who know Heroes, um, Heroes is currently in pre-production as a web series, um, so it's been oh, awesome. so it's been like adapted and so we've had a couple of read-throughs and like writers' room sessions to really develop it. Um, and we're at a stage where we're really happy with the pilot and we're really happy with the pitch bible, and so that's going to start shooting in the next few months, I believe. So basically, um, imagine that the play or the radio play that you might be familiar with will be like the finale and it's kind of like you know teasing out some more nuance and some more plot lines around the actual life cycle of the band that heroes was about um and yeah outside of that then um then if if anybody was familiar with uh, my pitch the trial of dorian gray in movie maintenance um that's getting performed i believe in sydney in november and then in melbourne in january for the midsummer festival and um it is currently also being uh adapted as a short film in england so that's, oh, wow. yeah, that, which is really, really cool. Like I saw some, um, I saw some pre-production stills and everything the other day and that's looking really cool, but I don't, I don't really have much to do with that or with the, um, the Sydney production. I'm just kind of, you know, hearing about it happening as it happens. And that's really exciting. Um, so yeah, so there, there's quite a lot going on. It's just kind of, you know, trying to sort of keep my head above water a little bit and sort of, you know, not, um, not, not sort of drown under the weight of all these crazy, oh, I'm mixing my metaphors, um, not collapse under the weight of all these crazy things going on. You're allowed to mix your metaphors. You're a writer. Um, yeah, that's exactly. awesome to hear all the stuff that you've got going on. I can't wait to hear how that all turns out. No, thanks, man. And thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed it. No worries. Thanks again, Gabe. And best of luck with all your writing. All the best. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Novel Analyst Podcast. Gabe and I talked about a lot of different books and plays and short stories today. And for links to all of those, go to novelanalyst.com forward slash episode 5 and I'll put all the show notes and links for stuff we discussed right up there if you enjoyed this interview format and you really appreciated the conversation with Gabe feel free to leave a rating in iTunes to show your support and if you want to subscribe to the show go to novelanalyst.com forward slash subscribe stay tuned for my next episode in which I analyse Neuromancer by William Gibson 